I think I wasn't like purposefully doing this at the time, but I think like what I ended up doing was I was reflecting on how like in Transylvania there there are tunes that are like pretty specific to each village that you really only hear in like certain places. But then there are also like other popular tunes that are like they play this tune here in this way and they play the tune here in this way and they play the tune here. So I was kind of like not intentionally, but looking at it from the perspective of like, how would a Jewish band play this melody? Maybe like a Jewish band who was like, you know, from Transylvania or like, what what would that sound like? And that that's kind of like, that's kind of like the larger question of the album as well too. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Radiant Others Klezmer podcast. My name is Dan Blacksburg and I'm recording from Philadelphia. Today, I get to talk to violinist, composer, educator, and researcher Zoe Aqua, who is on a Fulbright researching Jewish and non-Jewish music in Transylvania and the surrounding regions in Hungary and Romania. These are regions where musicians have been exceptionally successful at keeping regional styles and repertoires alive and transmitting them to new generations. Some of these musicians know and transmit specifically Jewish music from their families or from the repertoires of the towns where they live. Getting to learn both the Jewish and non-Jewish music from these people is a perfectly complementary experience to the way that we learn and nurture and grow our klezmer and Yiddish worlds, and yet it's a completely different experience to how we are able to do things. What would it be like if when we wanted to learn klezmer music, instead of having to go to wonderful but carefully and consciously constructed festivals like Klez Camp and Klez Canada, we could just go to a place where Jews live and learn klezmer music from the people who made it that's specific to where they live and doesn't sound like anywhere else. It's mostly not how we get to do things, let's be honest. For me personally and for those of us in Philadelphia, we are incredibly lucky to get to learn and engage with the music of the Hoffman Watts clan and especially through Susan Watts and her mom Elaine Hoffman Watts. I realized soon after I started playing with them how lucky I was to be able to learn and play klezmer that was truly from a specific place and from a specific family. There's a special flavor to the way that they and hopefully I play the music that I've never really experienced anywhere else. Zoe shares with us a lot of her own unique experiences of this type that she's having all the time in little villages and other small towns and even in big cities where she's meeting and learning from and playing with practitioners of different kinds of music from the region she's living in. There's a lot of good stories in here. We also talk about Zoe's new record, In Val Rhein, which is out on Borscht Beat. It features her original klezmer compositions played by a band of Hungarian musicians who are versed in many of the styles that she's researching. By working with these Hungarian musicians as a klezmer musician with her own klezmer compositions, Zoe is imagining new alternate realities of musical paths and combinations and making them real for our enjoyment. It's great music, and I hope you check it out. Finally, we talk about some of our hopes and dreams for how we can get even better at teaching and performing and transmitting this klezmer and Yiddish culture that we love so much. Once again, I'm sincerely asking you to support us in making this podcast by going to patreon.com slash ratingothers 
signing up as a patron and contributing what you can. We are so excited to be bringing these new episodes for you, and we've got even more exciting conversations coming up, but we are also quite far from this being a sustainable endeavor. I really want to keep making these episodes regularly and get them out to you about every two weeks for as long as I'm able. And to do that, I need the help of my producer, Bela Unger. And to do that, I need to be able to pay them what they deserve for their work. And to do that, I need your support so that we can have enough resources to make this all happen. So please visit the Patreon and sign up or be in touch with one of us if that isn't a way that works for you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Zoe Aqua. Zoe Aqua, welcome to Radiant Others podcast. It's so great to see you. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. I mean, you know, one of the funny things about this podcast is that for the people listening, it's a standalone experience, right? But for us, it's like just the continuation of a conversation that happens every six to seven months. Totally. You know, in yeah. some way. So <laughs> I think I saw you. I, well, I definitely saw you very recently in at Yiddish New York. That was a and blast. I think the last time I saw you, yeah. And the last time I saw you before that was at Close Canada. Was that right? Probably, yeah. And then before that, you, me, and Ira played in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah, that was fun. That was... What year was that, though? The summer before? Time is yeah, it was like... 2021. It was 2021 yeah. for sure because it was definitely people weren't wearing masks. So it wasn't yeah. like five years ago or something. <laughs> I was like, was that suddenly five years ago? It no, I don't, I don't could, think you so. Know, yeah, time is a warp. So My first question is, where are you now? <laughs> I'm actually in Budapest right now. I'm taking a short detour from my research in Transylvania to take a Hungarian language class here. And that's ending at the end of this month, and I'm going back to Cluj to finish up my grant period till the summer. Wow. And you're on your second Fulbright, or you got your Fulbright extended. What's it sound? I don't know which one sounds cooler, but whatever sounds cooler. Thanks. You did, you're not, it's not just one, it's like roll, roll over. Yeah, I got super lucky that they offered people to apply for extensions. So I did, and then they gave it to me, which was really good because I felt like I was like kind of getting on a roll with what I was doing and really happy that I got to continue it. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So can you give us a broad overview of your research? Sure. I just, one thing I just thought of that I wanted to mention is something that Christina Crowder told me, who I know has been on this podcast. Mm -hmm. She did a Fulbright in Transylvania a while back and I met up with her before I initially left last year, and she had two pieces of advice. First one, buy a car, even a used car. She said, go wherever you need to go, find a used car. And then the second one was learn Hungarian, even though Transylvania is in Romania and most people do speak Romanian. She's like, folk music scene, it's important to know Hungarian. So both of those pieces of advice at the time, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay, maybe. And then a year later, getting the extension, I was like, both of those are really good pieces of advice. So I actually did both of those things. <laughs> so 
Lesson of the podcast, listen to Christina. Yeah, so what am I doing there? I am talking to musicians. I'm learning how to play styles of music that they play there, folk music. And I'm also talking to them about how they learned how to play, who taught them, what that process was like, and how they're sort of passing on their traditions as well. Wow. Yeah. You know, I was talking with my producer, Bela Unger, earlier as we were getting prepared for this, and I was sort of commenting on my own set of experiences with musicians from Transylvania and sort of on either side of it, I would guess, across between Hungary and Moldova and areas like that who play, I guess, these these general types of music, you know, instrumental uh, acoustic folk styles that often include dance music as well as a lot of other things, but that my experience was just the way in which they're sort of cousins of our music, of klezmer, and how all the ways in which they're the same, in which they're different. But what's cool about what you just said about your research is how you're going after their answers to, at least for me, some of our questions. Totally. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely on the same wavelength of being like, okay, music-wise, definitely these genres are like cousins and they're related. And these are also, yeah, questions that we share and that we have in terms of transmission and also teaching and pedagogy, which are obviously things that we both care about a lot and think about Mm -hmm. a lot. So, yeah. Yeah, those, those are, I would say that's like, one of the main topics that I think of when I think of the fact that this is sort of just us continuing a conversation every several months totally. over the course of years. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I think it's so cool that you're exploring the kinds of questions that we grapple with all the time with styles of music that have so much different experiences in terms of, I'll just say, continuity of people and geography. Definitely, yeah. So let's start with like, who are some of the people that you've been meeting and what's a trip like when you're doing this research? Hmm. Wow, where to start? Definitely some of the people I've been working with and like purposefully kind of seeking out are folks that have come from a more unbroken line of family musicians, which mm-hmm. is obviously something that also exists in the Klezmer world and more so used to exist. Uh, yeah. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> very, very rare, but it's there. Yeah, yeah. But that used to be more of a thing. Oh, yeah. So just just learning from those people who are like, I learned from my uncle and he learned from his dad and that guy learned from that guy, you know, and they, they sort of just have this line. One of those people is Florian Kodoba from the Palatka village who's really really carrying on that style and also teaching his sons who are doing amazingly so he's really carrying on that family tradition which is really cool among others also yeah trying trying to talk to some musicians who learned if not from family from like just people in the village thinking of one older guy named Yuan Harlitz Nuku who I really like a lot who just learned how to play from like older people who were around in his village and taught him. And also like some people who kind of came up through revivalist systems, like the Tansas movement, which is a Transylvanian and Hungarian movement that pretty much started right around the Klezmer revival or 
revitalization um, movement. There's some overlaps, I think, there time-wise that are kind of interesting. And so, like, yeah, some of the, that younger generation as well that doesn't necessarily have a family lineage but is, is really involved in keeping the music alive. Right. Like, I was thinking about the difference between the family vibe and the revitalization or revival vibe is the difference between whether the sounds you're making are based first and foremost in the people and places you're in hmm. versus, you know, the revitalization vibe is the people and places have to come together because they have a shared concept of a sound or music that they want to make. And they have to sort of do that maybe in spite of the general place they're in or something like that. You know, I know luckily for me and for a lot of us in Klezmer, whether if you've been around long enough that you got to be around someone like Sid Beckerman, Howie Leese, Paul Pincus, uh, Bronya Sakina, mm-hmm. you know, Ben Baszler, or younger people like Pete Sokolow and Elaine Hoffman Watts. Yeah. Unfortunately, only Ray Musiker of all those folks, I think, is still with us. Mm-hmm. Although hopefully, I'm sure there's some other folks around too. But, you know, they kind of brought that sense to Klez Camp or wherever they were teaching or whoever they were doing. And we tried to sort of get it. And, you know, for me, I get to do it when I hang out with Susan Watts and her family. Just started getting together with her and her nephew who plays drums. And it's great because we're Mm. just we're playing the family sound, you know. And but that does feel like a very rare experience for me. And most of the time I kind of have to decide to be one of those people for other people. But. Do you feel like it's like a difference in quantity only or is it like is it a difference in like quality or like the the method or the way it feels or is it just having so much more people so many more people around who come from family lineages changes the whole vibe already? I think I think it is a situation where the family lineage model has been dying off but it's it's been one of those things where for the last you know 40 years People have been like, this is dying. So it's obviously decreasing, but it's, it's not completely gone. But there, you know, there used to be more of that as well in the Transylvanian Mm -hmm. and Hungarian scenes in terms of family lineages. So they're, they're grappling with some of the same issues that we are for sure of being like, how do we preserve specific playing styles? I think they have the boon of having a lot more recorded oh, wow. material than we do especially if you if you're like interested in european klezmer stuff obviously we just you know we don't have as much like recorded sound material as they do because they were recording tons of bands like in the beginning of the Tantas movement in the mm. 70s and 80s there was like a huge drive to like try to preserve a lot of this stuff which, if I'm not mistaken, that's kind of when, like, Bugich was recorded, right? Oh, I don't know. That's I'm cool. Not, I'm, not, I'm not totally positive. But, you know, it's just, yeah, it's it's something that's that sometimes I think about where I'm like, okay, they just, they do have more recorded material than us. I think they also have, like, closer geographical proximity where, like, you know, even if you're, like, a kid studying this stuff in Budapest, a lot of the music that they're studying is from Transylvania, which is, like you know, six, seven, eight hours away, which is not that far away. Right. Um, and there's a different uh, energy around traveling 
eight hours than there is certainly on the East Coast of the United States. <laughs> I don't know what you'd have to do to get me yeah. to go eight hours to go somewhere. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I still think it's it's a thing where I talk to, you know, now that I'm here in Budapest, like I talk to players who are here and they're like, that's so great that you went to blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a lot of people here who just aren't going out to the villages because whatever, they're working and they don't have time and or they're right. they're studying here and they just can't get out there. So, uh, you know, I think there there's that mindset too of like, oh, not enough people are like going out to these villages and really like hearing how people play out there. So that's so there's interesting. That. But that, that, that's like leads me to another thing I was thinking about. And we definitely want to put it put into European klezmer music and all that stuff, especially how all of this relates to the album that you made recently. But we'll get to there in a second. Before that, I was thinking once again about how these videos that you posted on Instagram or your blog posts, uh, and I'm some I'm amazed at how many people our general age range that you've been hanging with that maybe are not only the people that you're going to learn from informants from, but are maybe the informants themselves. And I was just thinking about how that's cool. Yeah, I think there's definitely like, there's a lot of younger people who are more on the revivalist, you know, I would put myself in that box as well too. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think the other thing that's really different about like Transylvanian music is that it's extremely like micro local. So in in a lot of cases, each village really has like its own sound. And if you want to be a good revival musician, you have to know how they, how this Primosh plays in this village. And then there's that guy in that village. And, you know, it's like a lot of knowledge. It's really kind of a high bar. And so that's, that's what the revival musicians here are trying to do is like have all of that going on, which is very impressive. But there are a lot of people who are doing that, which is cool. They also have like some really impressive educational systems set up to help people get into that. So that's really great. I mean, I think that that's something that I'm sure klezmer music in Europe had that level of regionalism. It probably had it in America when people came over in the, you know, 100 to 150 years ago. I mean, a lot of regionalism gets collapsed in the U.S. anyway for all sorts of forces, but we definitely, that's not the experience. I mean, I've I've barely had that experience, and I get to play with people who are like real Philadelphia, klezmer generational people, and that still has barely that experience. I think it's really cool that the Philly sound has persisted, and also having that repertoire core as well is really cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's persisted about as much as it can through somewhat different repertoire, somewhat different versions of common tunes that there were sort of classic versions uh-huh. of. But there's the but you know, New York is just such a default of all I mean I mean, how many ways can you say that? It's it's so true about so many things, right, but right. including Klezmer. But okay, okay. So what's an example of let's say an easy trip that where you're like, I want to go learn from this person or I'm, or like part of your, you're executing part of your research grant, Uh right? And what's like an example of something that was like easy and what was an example of something that was like (laughs) a little more complex? Just like if you sort of paint the picture for us. That's, That's a good question. I mean, this reminds me of when I was on stage performing at YNY and Rebecca Mackinis came up as a guest 
And her violin just went, broom, like it completely went out of tune. And so she needed a few minutes to tune. And I was trying to like stall by being like, I should tell a story of something that happened in Transylvania. And just so many examples came into my mind at the same time. I was like, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. I think Transylvania is one of those places where hilarious things are always happening. And it's, I don't yeah, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like you go five minutes outside of Cluj, which is a city where I'm living, which is about, I think now 400,000, maybe larger than that people. And you just see like people driving horse carts down the road. It gets very rural, very fast. Mm. It's a place where I think things happen like sort of at their own pace. You can't really like force things to happen. People are pretty relaxed, but it's also like it can be a very slow pace which is sometimes frustrating coming from New York where you're like, boom, 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 why isn't this happening faster? Yeah. So just to answer your question, a pretty easy trip. I, I mean, I would say at this point, you know, I have some informants and colleagues there that I've known for like a year and a half. So I would say like visiting, visiting Nuku, this older guy who lives about maybe an hour, an hour and a half away from Cluj. So that's pretty accessible. But I will say there's always been funny stuff that's happened to me visiting him. One time I drove into his yard and I drove directly into a giant hole. And then, yeah, getting the car out was like a whole thing. A guy came by with a horse and he was like, well, just hook up this horse to the car and then he'll pull it out. And, you know, it's just like that didn't work. And, you know, we're trying all these different things. Finally, his daughter comes back and with a car and they like they like towed it out. But. So there, there's always something at, happening actually in Transylvania. I would say even like a very uneventful trip, there's always something going on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it's always like, often with musicians, it's pretty common for them to live with extended family members and like the older ones, especially I usually like visit at home. So like family is around, kids, horses, animals, you know, it's just <laughs> it can be a bit of a crazy environment sometimes. So that would be like a uneventful trip. I think the more challenging ones were last year when I was trying to make contact with people for the first time. Yeah, I think I think a lot of things have been easier this year because I know people, my language skills are better. I do have a car because I took Christina's advice and I bought a used car. <laughs> I can get around easier. So I remember last time some Klezmer peeps came to visit and we were going to visit this guy, Vasily Rus, a.k.a. Postashel. His nickname is The Postman because he is a retired postman. That's one. He's this incredible guy, and I was teaching music that I learned from him at YNY. He's really into some of the Jewish stuff that he learned from this guy, Charta, who was really famous. And anyway, so he's a very interesting guy. So, and Bob Cohen had told me, you know, you really should contact this guy. So... I had his address and I was looking for it and I just just like really turned around and I'm with some other Klesmer colleagues and it's just like freezing outside. We're just driving around. I'm trying to call him, but like he was talking to me on a landline and like the buttons were like pressing his, like as he was talking mm -hmm. in Romania, it was like beep, beep, beep. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't even like hear him. I have no idea where to go. Also, my Romanian isn't that good. So we eventually did find him. He was like waiting outside in the freezing cold. And I was like, oh, my God. And then also I I hadn't brought on along a translator. And my Romanian was not that good at the time. Still not like amazing, but I can understand more than I did last year. And he lives up near Seaget in Maramuresh, 
it's where Ellie Weissel was from. It's right near the border of Ukraine. And the accent there is different. Also, the dialect, like he uses different vocabulary than people in Cluj. So he was just talking to us and Zaffer was one of the people visiting me. And Zaffer was like, what is he talking about? I'm so interested. His playing is so amazing. And I was like, Zaffer, I'm like barely getting this, <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> he was like just tell him that this is amazing and that we love his music and I was like he knows he knows we're really excited and that we're just pumped about this music and that <laughs> you know I've been back to visit him multiple times sometimes also with translators who can really get into like the details of what he's trying to say and I think the first visit to a new musician is always the hardest <laughs> so yeah I can imagine so yeah, you're getting into these details, you're learning all this new music, and I'm assuming it's not like an hour lesson like we do here. It's like these are long marathon kind of vibes, right? They can be, yeah. I, I think that's a maybe that's something you've discovered also in Eastern Europe, like when, when people get going, that could be like a long hang that goes on for hours, you just don't know, and yeah. And uh you gotta you gotta eat the food and drink the drinks they offer you and all that. That's stuff. big, yeah, yeah. For me, that's a big thing. Trying local foods and I mean, oftentimes, yeah, people are preparing local specialties that are exciting to try. I want to try that stuff and Suica, Palinka, all that is a big part of the whole hospitality thing too. So prepare your liver. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know what? How would you navigate all this stuff as a sober person? Oh. I guess they'd understand eventually, or not. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I, I think if they knew, they would just be like, "All right, that." I mean, I feel like for me, like me coming into the scene, I'm already like a woman, also a Jewish person, an American. You know, they're just like, we don't really understand what you're doing or why you're here, but we're glad you're here. So, yeah, it's... Well, that's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Because it could easily be, like, we don't understand what you're doing and, you know, get the F out. Yeah. Or, like, you know. Yeah. So that's great that it's been welcoming. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking, like, what well, it's, like, some deep stuff that you've, that you've been starting to get from these people. Is it just repertoire? Is it, like, things that have completely changed the way you think about your instrument? Like, all the above? Hmm. I, I think all the above... I think in terms of like how I play and how I think about that, it's definitely changed my mindset a lot, especially coming from a classical training, which, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm really lucky to have. I had amazing teachers who taught me really good technique and I never injured myself and, you know, knock on wood, I hope that continues. But, you know, I was taught like you have to, you have to have like a, you know, like this position on your hand, you have to hold the bow like this. And then going to Transylvania, I just saw like people holding it, <laughs> you know, they're holding it in however way they're holding it and they're holding the bow like the crazy way or wh whatever, you know. And I think at first I was like, oh, my God, what what is that? You know, but then people actually started explaining to me like, well, you know, if you hold the violin like this and you use this flat hand technique, actually, like some of the ornaments are easier to do that way. Oh, yeah. So there is a logic behind it. But also, I don't know, there, there's one um, teacher there, Levante Pazakash, who's really amazing. He's also been to the States a number of times. He speaks great English and he's really funny and stuff. And he was just talking to me a lot about like, you know, not every note has to start with like a clean 
articulation. You know, like that maybe that's expected in mm-hmm. classical music, but that's not that's not what they're going for in folk music. And yeah, so so just thinking about like maybe dirtying up the sound in certain ways or or trying to vary the articulation more, trying to like not every note has to be 100% even audible or clear like what the note is. I've been thinking about that a lot. So that's really changed the way that I play. And I, I think just in terms of like the mindset about music, just hearing a lot about how music really used to be a part of like daily life in terms of being part of agricultural things and villages where people were working together to like, you know, bring in a bunch of crops from the field or, you know, women would be like crafting and singing. And, you know, there's just like, there are all these things where music was really an important part of like daily life, especially in rural settings. So that's been interesting. Yeah, it just sends my mind spinning off into all sorts of directions about what we have, what we don't have, what other people have, what they don't have, and all that stuff. But, you know, I'm thinking about right now this record you made where you said original klezmer compositions inspired by your studies of Transylvanian, Romanian, Hungarian music. I mean, first of all, it sounds exactly like that, so that's very good. It's really cool. And the... And uh, one thing that was really fun was we were, Bale and I were talking about how listening to the record again, I'm not sure I'd heard more than the singles, but just getting preparing for talking with you, how memorable your songs were. Oh, thanks, Dan. Because, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I mean, between the two of us, we maybe heard each of them, maybe them only two or three times, like, but, you know, once live at Yiddish New York else, and yeah. like maybe on the video when you first made it, but I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that part. Like that's that spot. So cool. Thanks. It's a good place to be coming from. Yeah. So we, we've been talking about all this music that you're studying out there, but we have to talk about the music that you're coming with the music you're coming with. Klezmer music. (laughs) There's that. Yeah. What did you feel like you showed up with, with Klezmer music? And then I'm assuming that your sense of what that was got challenged pretty quickly, but like, yeah, what did you come with? You know? That's a good question. I, I think me coming in last year, especially meeting people for the first time, I really wanted to be like, I'm almost coming as a kind of as a blank slate, even though I'm not a blank slate, you know, but leading from the perspective of being like, I want to know about your music, you know, uh-huh. and then once they get to know me, if they're like, what, what type of music do you play? Then, then I'll, then I would tell them, like, 
actually I, I'm coming from klezmer music and and that's my background and and usually people were like pretty surprised about that actually because they were just like why is someone coming from that scene here like they were like is your family Hungarian or like Romanian something I'm like not not really you know I mean I probably have some roots from that part of the world but I wasn't like raised with like a you know we're Hungarian or something yeah, I definitely wanted to lead by being just like, I'm showing up to like learn from you as first and foremost and trying not to put too much, too many expectations on that. But I mean, I think it, just in terms of skills, what Klezmer gave me is just, you know, learning by ear is ex- like extremely important here. And it's also something I've been thinking a lot about pedagogically because, you know, I was luckily trained with a lot of ear training even in my classical training like as a Suzuki kid and also did a lot of just like figuring out songs from a bunch of genres over the years and and learning by ear which I think is really important but like definitely being in situations with guys here where like I'm meeting with some guy I'm trying to remember a tune he played last time and like play it with him or something and I'm like looking at my little notation book to try to remind remind myself how it goes and the dude's like, why do you have that? Why do you need that? That's, no, it's all in here. Like, I don't need that. I'm like, I know. <laughs> That's happened a number of times. So I'm not at their level where they're like, I just have thousands of tunes in my head that I could just pull out, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but but I think, you know, having the ear training of coming from another folk genre where like you you are at least semi-expected to like be able to sort of pick up melodies or I don't know we could talk about that more about how the ear training comes into it but I'm glad at least I had like that to be like okay I'm really going to engage with this learning by ear approach right thinking about making this album that came out last year and people should check it out it's on Bandcamp on the Borscht Beat page and I'm sure in many other places as well you know you call it a klezmer album, so you're you're coming at it as like I am a klezmer musician who's making klezmer music, right? But then you're in this other situation where you just said that you're kind of coming in as a blank slate. So <laughs> you're maybe you're make, putting some separation between the two, but you're then saying no, I'm gonna not separate these two and put it together. And let's let's keep it in the album sure, for right sure. now. But like when it came to like say composing this music, do you just sort of like let the kle- you're like well I klezmer I'll just do that. How, how do you approach the klezmer side of things or where did you let that in from or was it just already there and you're just kind of working with it? Because it's not like yeah. you're showing up cold. <laughs> you, you've played a lot of klezmer music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think thinking about the album, it, it it's a mix of different things on the album. Like some of some of the tunes are like tunes that I composed as a klezmer tune or as a niggin or as, you know, something really within the klezmer genre and then took the to these Transylvanian and Hungarian musicians that I worked with and was like what would you do with this and they were like well I wouldn't play that chord and change that you know kind of like going through it being like this is how we would play this and that was also collaborative of of being like yeah what what sort of genres in your world does this kind of sound like and how can we maybe like not meet in the middle but like make something out of that together So that was some of the songs. And then some of the songs were me kind of taking a piece of inspiration from something from this part of the world, whether it's like 
a Romanian La Tariasca tune or a, like a Transylvanian instrumental piece that I just liked and that I was like, okay, I want to klezmerize this in some way. And also like changing the melody, changing the rhythm, you know, really trying trying to make it into something that's new, but that like people here are like, I feel like I've heard something like that before. And I'm like, yeah, you have. <laughs> the bones are still in there. But I, I think I was reflecting on that recently and I, was, I wasn't like purposefully doing this at the time, but I think like what I ended up doing was... I was reflecting on how like in Transylvania there there are tunes that are like pretty specific to each village that you really only hear in like certain places but then there are also like other popular tunes that are like they play this tune here in this way and they play the tune here in this way and they play the tune here. So I was kind of looking at it from the perspective like not intentionally but looking at it from the perspective of like how would a Jewish band play this melody maybe like a Jewish band who was like you know from Transylvania or like what what would that sound like and that that's kind of like that's kind of like the larger question of the album as well too is just thinking about like if the holocaust hadn't happened or like if you know if giant waves of immigration hadn't happened to America even like pre-holocaust like what would Jewish music in eastern Europe sound like question that we keep getting to imagine different real alternate realities totally you know alternate universes for i think that that's that's both our sadness and also our joy of getting to invent different answers to that question all the time or some version of that putting ourselves back in the story you know there's this way in which i feel like the people who write history you know when you when you think of histories written by the winners those quote-unquote winners get to write so many people out. You know, as for me, it's, and I think a lot of people, and some people in our scene who come from more of the jazz background or maybe the avant-garde jazz background, you really see that from the black radical tradition of, or as one of my mentors who was connected to that said, if they write you out, you write yourself back in. And it's like, I think that that's something that uh, klezmer musicians, people who have taken on this Yiddish cultural music have been really, really successful at in terms of imagining whether it's actually creating some kind of like science fiction version or alternate reality version of things hmm. or or is just saying, you know what, here's what we have to work with. Let's make something now out of it. Totally. Right? It sounds like you had a lot of different kind of composing methods. Yeah. 
for this album, it wasn't just all, I have this great concept that I'm working, <laughs> that I must execute perfectly, or I just write what I hear, man. You know, it's somewhere. <laughs> somewhere in the middle, maybe. Or a mix or something. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely had to let go of, like, what will anyone think of this or will, like, people like this in any way, you know? I mean, it's been interesting now to, like, see the reaction also, like, from people in Eastern Europe because I was like, oh, my God, are are people going to be like, you ripped off that song and you're playing it wrong, you know? I was like... <laughs> I was like, <laughs> It could happen. Yeah, will that happen? I, I, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah it could happen, yeah. but it sounds like so, it did. So far, it's not happening, which is cool. I think people have picked up on the fact that I'm trying to do something different. I'm not saying it won't happen, but, no, you know, but I definitely had to just like put that aside and be like, okay, I'm doing some things where I, I mean, you know, we're all constantly like remixing, you know, ideas and sources. Right. And I think also taking, taking inspiration from like a band like Varetsky Pass, who has really inspired me and is, always kind of remixing things in different ways and and using parts of this parts of that something original and, and then put this on it and, you know that kind of approach um as well yeah it's amazing when you actually break down some of the ways in which you take like a 24 bar melody or a 32 bar melody and you and then you're saying, well, this comes from here and this comes from here and this comes from here. But I put it in this different rhythm or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's it's actually kind of overwhelming <laughs> in terms of the amount of information or like the process. But then you like, you know, if it's good, you listen to it. No one notices. And even when you're playing it at some point, you're like, you're not we're not we're not compiling machines. You know, something <laughs> else. Something else happens. Maybe, maybe that's the next stage of chat GPT and all these A.I. things. Is uh, uh, Well, they're Klesmer. not going to get near Klezmer. Anytime soon. I hope there's not. There's not enough writing on the. There's not enough. There's not enough writing on the internet <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, I hope they just don't start um, compiling a new Klezmer team. Who knows? Maybe it would be oh good. Oh my god, it could happen. I think our friend Aaron has tried some things. <laughs> you know, so we'll see what happens. Right. But um, you know, I want to go back to the idea that you talked about a little earlier when you said you brought your compositions to. I'm assuming these are people who were sort of in the revi- younger people in the revivalist category. Who you? Who are your collaborators on the album? Uh, yeah, yeah. These are um, revivalist musicians. One of whom is from Cluj, and the other two who record on the album are living in Budapest. I met them a while back at a folk music camp, so I knew that. You know, I had known them for a while, and I was like, okay, I think these guys would be willing to like do something a little bit out of the box. Yeah. So, yeah, I I mean, a, a friend of mine, Glenn Tucker, who's an amazing organist and pianist was asking me like oh have you played any of this stuff with like older musicians who are really like in their village styles and I'm like no I think that'd be very interesting and would require a whole different approach and maybe I'll try to do that at some point I don't know but definitely like working with these revival players who are their training is to really be able to play a lot of different different micro styles Mm. so then finding with them like oh we're gonna do this in the style of sake sake that's gonna work with this and you know so like kind of using their vocabulary as well as like being like this is a bulgar right because very few of us i think are capable of doing micro styles but even those of us like i'd like to think i'm one of those people i don't break it down that often i just start playing 
Right. You know, and it depends on who I'm playing with. But that's really interesting. So what kind of familiarity did they have with the Jewish side of things when you showed up? Well, I think also in terms of like starting with a blank slate, I don't even know how much I even explained to them about like what I was trying to do. I was just like, I have these tunes. I want to hear how you play it. You know, that turned into like an ongoing thing. But actually recently the bassist, Shika, Latsolo Shikai, he told me like, I never would have expected that I would be playing Jewish music or like I never would have expected that I'd be involved in something like this, you know? So I think it sort of took them into maybe out of their comfort zone a little bit, but that through this process, they've been like, we see what you're trying to do and we're on board with it, which is cool. Yeah, it's, I mean, you really need support when you're trying to build bridges between things. Because it's like, it's one thing to just do a fusion project where it's like, you just sort of take a mix of things and you just sort of plant a flag in the middle of somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's its own little island. But if you're actually trying to build bridges between two styles or two worlds, and I think that it sounds to me like you interact on a musical level until suddenly like the societal level or like the other levels of what it means to be working with a group, groups of people from different places and different backgrounds suddenly comes into play, you know, it's not just about sound anymore. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I got some really nice feedback from this recent album release concert that I did in Budapest. One audience member said, well, he told another musician, but then that musician told me, you're bringing cultures together, like Romanian, Hungarian, Jewish, you know, that that's interesting. And and I was like, that's cool. Like, that is what I want to be happening. But I didn't set out for for that result. You know, I, I just wanted to make some interesting music from these things that inspire me. So but I'm glad he I'm glad he felt that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have an opportunity to use your place and where where you are and and kind of mix all these things together. And you took it. It sounds great. Thanks. You know, I hope that in some ways we get to, all get to appreciate the bridge that you're building in more ways, you know, cross it and visit a little bit. I felt like I got a little bit of that watching you teach your class at Yiddish New York. And I was like, wow, that sound. Hmm. I can picture it right now. That one part was really high pitched with the violins. and Everybody's playing the same riff slightly different from each other and it feels very jewish i mean if if we think about you know so the idea of like everybody plays the melody in their own way kind of at the same time it feels that feels very jewish yeah but then of course the notes don't feel like the klezmer that i do yeah for the most part and it's like i mean in a way maybe a lot of the bridges are already there and we just get to sort of clean them up and shore them up a little bit, at least on the musical level. Yeah, I, I think the Maramurish Jewish stuff is really interesting because there are elements of it that like Post also has would definitely identify as being Jewish. He's like, this type of slide, no one else in Maramurish does that. That's a Jewish slide. Or like you know, like these mm. these certain little things and he'll point out like this tune has Jewish influences in, in it because blah blah blah. You know, which is interesting. But it's also like it's it's quite different from what we normally hear as klezmer music, as you yeah. pointed out. So it's it's like it's an interesting little offshoot, I would say. But yeah, it's fun to play. Isn't it so funny that you go over to this place where there are a few Jews and even fewer people playing music that they would consider Jewish, and they have a stronger sense 
of what is and isn't Jewish <laughs> or what is and isn't klezmer music than we do sometimes. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Although I would say sometimes people's idea of what is and isn't klezmer music is like, hmm. Oh yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So That's it's a, true it's, it's a, Yeah, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> okay, but but definitely, yeah. I mean that that guy in particular, Postal, has like really interesting insights and and he's very interested in different influences in Mara Morris music and what they sound like and yeah so that's really cool and and Mara Morris in particular had a really strong sense of Jewish music in his tradition or at least that seems to be the place where the most you know all the violinists I know who are involved in that part of the world they that word always comes up as opposed to some other you know some other places yeah. there's a lot of Jews that playing music there at some point uh, yeah I think so I, I think just that there's numbers you know numbers wise is like a lot of Jews there and also in Moldavia which is like the region that also really close to Bukovina but now is you know the region of Moldavia which is in Romania but close to what's now the Republic of Moldova but like that style of music I hear a lot of not only like stylistic things but also like tunes that we play that I'm like we really share a lot of overlap there that's not exactly where I am and where I'm living, but I am hearing a lot of that stuff and studying a yeah, bit of I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, the times I've gotten to work with Moldovan musicians or music from that area, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is like, yeah. this is where <laughs> this is where the non-Jewish parts of our stuff comes from totally. for the most part. And it's like, you know, I think I think that if you do the, you know, read some of the history books, there's pretty clear connections to that part of the world. Certainly Zeb Feldman makes a lot of strong connections to that totally. part of the world. I just wanted to turn the tables and ask you about your compositional process. Yeah, I can share. I think that I, you know, I, I struggle to keep a good compos- regular composition practice going, but my musical output kind of comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. So I've composed music in a lot of different genres, I guess you could say. And it's taken me a really, really, really long time to sort of let it all hang out, so to speak, where I'm just freely mixing influences Mm -hmm. but it's still hard because then you think about what project you're trying to output this with yeah and where that sits that sits in terms of like like for example okay i can write whatever tunes i want because it's a free country but like do i want people to be able to yiddish dance to them yeah you know and so the stuff that i did at yiddish new york was all stuff that i would say you know that was a concern that i was thinking about Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. Was just and and so I'm remixing or I'm using different influences in very specific ways, but I'm still always looking, like you said, for those bridges or those ways in which it can be sort of a both end situation. So when I did this project a while ago, where I ha- found that these very slow Hasidic nagunim reminded me of these heavy doom metal concerts that I was going to, or like sludgy stuff, and it's like the tempos are the same. Some of the, they were, you know, they get into their harmonic minor world and you're like, well, we can find a crossover in that. <laughs> like, there's a bridge. You know, yeah. and there's a bridge. And it's, and it was always going for this sort of both and. Mm. And I think with Klezmer, it's very, very difficult to find both ends with a lot of popular music styles. Yeah. But some people have figured it out. So that's sort of what I like. I like to do or this thing where it's sort of like, it comes from me as sort of somebody who just isn't, isn't a lot of, trying to be in a lot of places at once. And yeah. But I, I would say that I, my struggle often is with letting loose with my compositional voice. Mm. 
And uh, that's why I don't think I have a huge amount of compositional output. Well, I you know, would, of my own I mean, stuff. I was pretty impressed with the amount that you had just in this concert at YNY. I was like, this is like a lot of material. And I also want to give you a kudos for that. I thought there were oh, really you. some amazing tunes, especially some of the slower things like some of the slow jocks and whatever that that really like trippy one that Ilya was playing on that was really cool oh yeah that that's that one's cool I'm, yeah. I'm still happy with that one yeah it was really cool yeah I mean I I have a particular I think affinity to like kind of slow heavy music one reason why, right. why I like Transylvanian music is that sometimes it just starts really slow and heavy and then it gets slower and heavier and I'm like yes <laughs> yeah exactly so, it's like yeah. how do you make it more intense well you slow should down. speed it up and make it louder yeah slow down <laughs> yeah That's I deep. love that so I, I was I definitely I was really into the slow tunes where I was like ugh this is great so yeah. um ugh. yeah but yeah I think it's it's just so interesting to think about people out there having such a clear understanding of geographic difference of sort of like you said micro scenes yeah you know of of regionalism and um you know i think that's something that i would almost love to build back up yeah in our klezmer world but i think we'd have to change a lot of that things would have to grow even a lot more than uh they have already because you know it's like for me and i think for you the main way of getting into klezmer music is you get some recordings and you get psyched. Maybe you play a little bit locally, but then you go to these, you know, destinations where everybody from everywhere comes and learns together. And so, and then go back out right. into the world. So it's like, there is this centralization in the model that we've done at like a Klez camp or a Klez Canada, or even a Yiddish summer Weimar or Yiddish New York. That's like, that is this sort of centralizing and, you know, in a way is like different from this regional thing. And I think doesn't promote that in, in a specific way. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting to think about. I, I will say that one interesting question that I thought of as you were just talking about that was like when Ira Temple came out and visited um, Transylvania just for a few days last year. And we were like going out to Paletka, which is where Florian's family is from. And talking to an older musician out there and um Ira was just like what would a klezmer tantas like in the style of a tantas that happens here which is very regional micro regional like we're playing music from this village and then we're gonna do that for like 30 minutes to an hour then we're gonna stop and then we're gonna play only music from this village for a while and then mm. stop and then yeah. you know so it's really like quite segmented so Ira was like yeah what would that look like in a klezmer context is like that's an interesting idea i think a lot of us would have to do a lot of learning and before we could actually even pull it off yeah it would be really difficult i think i mean i i i thought it was a cool question because i was like i could definitely think of some things that could work right i was like we could do yeah. belf you know and then like stop yep. okay boogage boom you know like <laughs> there's certain things that could work for that but it, it's more of like the repertoire of a band or I guess in Bugic cases, like actually a family rather than like a village style specifically. Yeah. Well, diaspora people, what are you going to do? Yeah. We're always floating. But no, I mean, and then the way we learn it, it's like we kind of learn it more temporally than that. It's, it's like, are you going to play the stuff that sounds like that's like its roots are in 1914? Mm -hmm. Are you going to play the stuff that's roots are in 1945? Right. Or are you going to play, you know, 
And Maybe that's the organizing principle that makes more sense to us. I don't know. I think that's the thing we've had access to. Yeah. You know, because because recordings, right? Because recordings have been, at least for me, recordings were the central source of style. Recordings and playing with my peers or, you know, with people older than me were like the central way of learning this music. It wasn't yeah. like a print. I, I, I never had an apprenticeship model when it came to learning how to play klezmer and you know, there's not a lot of klezmer trombonists out there anyway. Right. So it's an, and there certainly really haven't been who have been sort of involved in these major Yiddish festivals for a long time. So it's kind of uh, it's it's just a funny thing for me always, but like, yeah, I don't know. Like, what, I'm I'm sort of trying to get around to the question of like, how'd you get into klezmer music? But I don't want to start from like scratch. I kind of want to like. Think like think back like how does that relate backwards from you you right now right. as a musician? Well, I will say how I got into Transylvanian music was through playing with Matthias Kaufman, who has been interested in Transylvanian music for a lot longer than I have, and oh, yeah. was already go, you know going out to folk music camps in Hungary and Transylvania like years before I even met them. So I think that you know. Collaborating with them was in our duo Farnacht um, was probably the first time that I was like listening to, again, like recordings, Transylvanian recordings. Um, I mean, I would also say listening to recordings is huge for my process, even when I am working with like live musicians, you know, hearing like the recordings of the generation before them or like a different Primash, Primash being the lead violinist, you know, that's. That's that's just always so huge and also I think such an important part of the learning process of like any folk genre is like getting deep into recordings. So yeah, yeah, so that's how I got into Transylvanian stuff and then moving backwards from that. I mean, unfortunately, I wasn't like I wasn't like going down the klezmer rabbit hole until like post klez camp, unfortunately. So I, I kind of missed the boat on on some of those things. I I mean, I did grow up listening to the Klezmatics and Brave Old World and a lot of those good mm. revival bands grew up in Denver where there's not like a giant scene for klezmer music, but my dad was always interested in it and, and played some klezmer music and stuff. So I, I grew up like knowing a few tunes, but not, you know, going to klez camp and studying it or anything like that. Yeah. Study classical music and also teaching up through university and then was basically just teaching full time in elementary school for a long time. Then I started getting some gigs that were not Klezmer related. And then I kind of reconnected with Ira, even though we grew up together in Denver. And then I remember one time we were just jamming and started playing some Klezmer tunes and was like, that was cool. So, you know, eventually that ended up with us playing together in Sibylla, which was a major motivation for me to get better at Klezmer music. And then I started going to Klez Canada and then it's just been all downhill from there. So, yeah, that's how it goes. You get you get enough hooks in you, you're done. Yeah, you're done. You know, yeah, you we're not gonna and and that's the thing is like once you once you invite your way into us into our world, we're not letting you go. No, anymore. it's very hard to get <laughs> it's out. True. <laughs> Blink twice if you need help. Yeah, exactly. If you need some other kind of music to play for a little <laughs> yeah. while. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, it's like when I met you, I mean, you had Sibylla, which was an up and coming band with like rapidly developing not only your own identity, but your own audience 
and sort of an independent way of doing these things. And then the other thing is you were sort of an up-and-coming New York klezmer musician in the sense of like, you know, New York seems to me always have these sense of like, well, if so-and-so's, first you call so-and-so, and if they're not available, then you call the other person. And it's like, yeah, you were getting on that list, and you're kind of working your Climbing way Climbing that ladder. If, they're, if, they're, if it <laughs> exists at all, and I don't think it exists most of the yeah. time, but sometimes it <laughs> yeah. does. So what was that like? And then what was it like to move away from, like, really let all that go? Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think New York is an amazing place to be if – if you're interested in klezmer music, because there really is a critical mass of people. And I, and I met amazing mentors like Pete Ruszewski, Lisa Gutkin, to name a few. People like Josh Waletsky are just around. You know, like you, you can just get gain so much from the people there. Also, New York is a really hard place to live. So there's yep. that. I think in terms of like getting out of New York, I, I don't think I would have thought to get out if the pandemic hadn't happened and like my longtime teaching job got eliminated during the pandemic so it's just like what do I do and then Bob Cohen was actually the one who put the idea in my head to apply for Fulbright a few years before I even actually applied but I think the whole process of the world shutting down forced me to be like okay what am I doing maybe I can think outside the box do something different but I think New York is kind of like that like once you're there, you sort of get sucked into this black hole. It could be good <laughs> and bad, but some, sometimes when you're there, it's impossible to think about, like, ever leaving. But then you have to also remember that, like, there's a whole world out there of other places yeah. that exist. So in the end, I'm, I'm glad that I had this opportunity to really, like, be somewhere completely different just to, you know, break out of the mold a bit. Yeah, yeah. That's super cool because for me, it's like I try to have my cake and eat it too all the time. Whereas I'll go up there, but if I want to go home, I have to leave the island, <laughs> you know, go back to Philadelphia. And I don't care what anybody says, we are not the sixth borough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So like, you know, now you've done this work, you've been, you're, you're, what, like a year and a half or year and two thirds in to being out there. I mean, I think you can feel free to answer this from what you were already thinking beforehand. Yeah. Because I know this is the other conversation that we've, you know, been having forever is like what the edge of this educate way we teach this music, the way we communicate this yes. culture to people <laughs> like now's your chance. But like Get on my soapbox. I don't know whether you actually. Yeah. Soapbox time. I don't know whether you actually want to. But if you find yourself including like specifically, you know, something that you've you're like learned recently and you're like from your time in Transylvania and doing this research that you're like, well, we really need to get on this people. Or if it's, I mean, I know you have, you had ideas even way before you went, mm -hmm. but soapbox time. Oh go. my gosh. Okay. I think I have a lot of ideas floating around. I don't know if a lot of them have coalesced yet, but I was actually just teaching Klezmer and also some Transylvanian Marmarish stuff in Prague about a week ago, which was amazing. And, and people were asking me like, how did, how did you come up with this teaching, like pedagogy? And, you know, I was like, well, first of all, that's my training, music education. I really spent a long time in school learning music education, but it's just something that I think about a lot. And I'm also a, 
I, I'm in the situation. I always like being in the situation also of like being in the beginner's mind as well. And I'm doing that right now in this Hungarian class where I'm just like constantly trying not to hit my head against the wall being like, this is so hard. Oh my God. How does anyone ever learn anything? But I have an amazing teacher who just, I'm always observing what she's doing. And sometimes after class, I just want to stand up and be like, she's really good. So I, I guess just always being in that mindset of being like picking up, like, what are you observing? Why is it working or why not? You know? And I don't know if this like has anything to do with Transylvania, but just, just thinking about like inclusive teaching techniques, I guess this is just an ongoing conversation that we've been having for the last however many years, but like thinking about engagement, how to get people really included, really engaged. I think an engaging and inclusive music situation is not necessarily what the old guys that I'm talking to came up with or anything like that. They were like, just listening to old guys play and then like trying to figure stuff out. And well, it's just, you know, what you're saying is like something that's actually quite inclusive is just letting someone be themselves in a space. And I, I always think about this when I think about the violin music of this region, because everybody's playing the same instruments, which means that their volume levels are relatively similar. Mm. This is a big issue for me as a trombone player. Yeah. And people with less experience generally are going to have less finesse of their touch, which means less volume on string instruments in my experience. Right. And therefore, you basically can have young people just sitting around, noodling away, trying to figure this out on their own. Yeah. And maybe that sounds isolating, but I think there's another way to look at it where you have absolutely free reign to figure this out at your own pace, which is certainly not, you know the American school model, right, right? Right, And there's something that is really interesting about that. Yeah, I definitely think there's something there, there. And it's interesting that you're relating it also to the instrument volume and being like, yeah, if you're a beginner, you probably don't project that much. And there's also like, I do think there's an expectation here of being like, okay, the pros are playing here and there's some young kids sitting in the back sort of just sawing away and that's fine. And I, I do wish that were more of a thing in the States because I think that's like, that's how a lot of these people here learned, you know, it's just, just like you're playing and playing and playing a lot. Like maybe you're with, a, you know, a family member who's playing almost every night or I just, I just watched these really incredible Roma musicians playing in Prague in a restaurant. Like these restaurant bands play every night, you know, and I think that was yeah. much more of a, a common thing also back in the day. But like, there was like, yeah, this young guy, I think he's like 17 years old or something, playing bass. And he's, he was just killing it, bowing on the upright bass. And I was thinking about that of like, okay, if I started playing a restaurant gig every single night on the bass, how long would I suck for before I got, <laughs> you know, before I like started to suck a little bit less? And then eventually I would probably be really good. Yeah. But like maybe it's just giving people more opportunities to just sit there and play and and not have to be perfect, but they're just doing it. Yeah. You know, at Class Canada, there's always an issue of volume when it comes to different things where it's like, you know, you have a bunch of strings together and you throw one trombone who doesn't know how to play quietly in there and that's gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can we can unfortunately, for better or for worse, we can like obliterate everything. <laughs> yeah. Certainly all the subtlety. Yeah. Of it. And I, I, I know because I've been kicked out of those rooms. 
but but we but we do have these multiplicity of instruments, for example. So we do have to think about how do you like consciously create these things. I know there's been some work on it that's interesting. There's now sort of these jam protocol at some of the programs. That's a good starting point. But I think, you know, I think about the other side of it, which is not only are people sort of included and willing to just, if you want to noodle around, but there's also some serious badasses leading the way that people are trying to imitate. So there's a lot. Right. There's a lot going on. They're not just noodling. They're also trying to, there's a lot of information to like process as well. That's, that's true. Yeah, I don't know if this is always true, but I have observed that, like, in certain situations here with adult beginners or adults that are, like, not at the professional level, you know, they feel less of a need to apologize about it. Like, I think in the States there's a lot of, like, you know, someone's an adult beginner. They're like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I just, like, I sound so bad. And and they're spending, like, hours apologizing. And you're just like, it's like, no, it's okay. Like, just play, you know. <laughs> so I think that's maybe part of it too is just like being in a mindset of like oh well I'm not I'm not at a professional level so good. that's a good sort of offer to the people who are listening it's like don't apologize for where you're at just keep going yeah. just keep going and I, I think it's a I think it's a call out to also jam leaders and teachers as well of being like not every jam has to have like you know five trombonists playing at the same time as like all these violinists who are trying to play like maybe we don't need that but like people do need an opportunity to just play and and it needs to be in an accepting environment where they can make mistakes because it's not helpful or useful for people to just be going around apologizing all the time like sorry I'm so bad yeah (laughs) because we got a lot of work to do if we're gonna ever get to this point where we know all these micro styles of klezmer music or we invent them because currently they've all been a little bit squashed yeah you know yeah yeah that's so interesting any other soapbox like the way we teach this stuff dancing i don't know yeah i mean i i definitely think movement is super crucial even i mean i'm not like a dance teacher at all and actually it's one of my goals is to like get better at maybe dance leading or something but even just having people move to the beat you know i think i think as a klezmer teacher like okay, people are struggling to like stay in rhythm with a jock or something like just have them walk to the beat while they're playing, I think is a really good idea because movement builds rhythm capacity. I think my main soapbox is like, let the students show what their knowledge is. You know, like don't don't just give them the answer all the time, like ask questions, like ask a lot of questions as a teacher. And they could be simple questions like, what are the notes in an E major chord? Go, you know, or like a more complex question. Like, do you think this is a major or a minor? Like compare these two tunes. What's different? What's the same or whatever, you know, uh, like at all levels, but like just let them show where they're at and then make decisions based on that about like the pacing. Cause I, I think at the end of the day, pacing is the most important thing in teaching is that you're just, you're just leading them forward at a pace that is like exciting to most of the people in the class. Yeah, you have to meet people where they are. Yeah. I think that that's how, you, that's how you go somewhere because that's how you go somewhere together. Yeah, determine where they're at and then be like, all right, we're, we're moving. Yeah. Usually when it comes to this kind of music, it's not about technique, it's about vibe. 
right. about rhythmic. It's about rhythm and, and feeling the styles. Because I think one of the things I think about folk music is that it needs to be accessible at people. Like, you need to be able to get the energy of a specific style of music from people at multiple levels of technique. Whereas, like... Totally. Classical music, that's not really the case. You know, you yeah. can't act... You can't execute certain pieces without the technique to play the parts of them. But, you know, you can have somebody who can have certainly non-classical idea, you know, approaches to intonation or articulation or something like that, or even non-virtuoso approaches to those things. And then you still, you're like, you can still be floored by them. Totally. You know? Yeah. That's kind of what I want, right? Yeah. I think that's something that we struggle with as a scene. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think this has also been some conversations I've had with, with Avia more, you know, at Class Canada and and also some of the students at Class Canada, you know, because obviously when you organize a festival, we have one week and it's like you have to make choices about what what are you prioritizing, right? Like, are you prioritizing technique? Are you prioritizing feel or repertoire? Yeah. Or, and I, I definitely think being around a lot of non-classically trained musicians in Transylvania has really like exploded my brain on on a lot of those questions of being like, Technique, like, yeah, technique is a tool to serve a purpose, right? To allow you to do things that you want to do. But, like, yeah, listen to listen to Belf. Do you think all of those guys had amazing technique? Like, probably not. But, yeah, ha- having those conversations with people about being, like, why, why is technique maybe not the thing that we're prioritizing the most mm-hmm. in this scene or whatever? Even though, yeah, I mean, technique is important. Yeah. Among like other said, things. Keeps keeps you from throwing your back out. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that's that's a good soapbox as well. Just focusing on go. sound, focusing on feel, getting to those like what are the building blocks of our, our repertoire and our sound. Well, I wanna learn a really, really good Maramurish slot, Jewish slide on trombone. That's what I want. You know, I actually, I had the experience in Prague of teaching the, the some of this Maramurish Jewish stuff to a group that included clarinetists because they really wanted to learn it. And I was talking to the organizer and I was like, I know this works for, for string players. It's great string music. I don't know if it's going to work for the clarinetists. I was, I was just putting that out there. I was like, I don't know about this. And he was like, they're into it they're excited about it they want to learn it so just do it and i think they really uh i think they really took to it but again it is one of the challenges of our scene right that we're like not always just playing with string instruments or we're not always just playing with brass or or whatever it's like it has to be a lot of it has to be combined yeah it's a big challenge well cool uh well, actually, I, mean, I do have one final question, but before I ask you that, is like anything else that's on your mind you want to make sure people know about? Well, I had another turning the tables question for you, which was okay. like, do you have any recording plans in the near future for your stuff? Nah, nah, nah. Well, <laughs> the answer is like always, but I don't have enough time and money. I feel, <laughs> yeah, I feel that's that. The real, that's the real thing. I feel that. But, um, yeah. I definitely think the, the Y&Y set that you did, I was like... I know you've recorded some of those things with just like, you know, a, a sort of more pared down version, but I thought the full band version sounded really cool. And I was like, I hope Dan records some of this stuff with a bigger yeah, band. It would someday. be great if, 
if they were, I mean, it, that's a real far flung outfit group of people. Yeah. You know, but I was, I think, I think, I think Dan, Dan with strings was pretty exciting. It was cool. Yeah. So it was pretty fun. Yeah. And uh, thank you for participating yeah, in that too. Yeah, great program. Yeah. So what's next? What's coming up? Like what's exciting? What, what are you up to? What, what should we watch out for? And also where can we find out about what you're doing and more and all that stuff? All great questions. I'm about to have some videos drop from my Budapest concert, which I'm really excited about because I know this is an important aspect of making music that we don't often talk about, but like that whole aspect of being like, okay, you did something, show the people what you did, you know? Yeah. So I am excited about these videos. I also have, I've been doing this ongoing collaboration with a amazing animator named Gabriela Sibilska and she did one short animation to the piece called Welcome to the Welcome Bulgars from my album. And we got funding to do a second installment from the Jewish Museum of Maryland. And that's going to be part of an upcoming show there, which is opening at the end of March. And she just sent me a sketch of this piece today. And it just Total, it already blew my mind and it's just a sketch. So I'm extremely excited about what she's doing with that. Yeah. So where where can people find out about what I'm doing? I have a website, zoeaqua.com. Also, my blog is there. Also, I normally post about concerts and stuff on my artist page on Facebook, which they could follow, and Instagram, yeah. social medias. Instagram, social medias. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, I know that there's a lot to come. There's been you've offered us so much already, music, ideas, visuals, people, and I'm just glad to know you and get to play music together and have these long-range topics that we keep going after because it sounds like you're really deep in it and I'm so excited to see what comes from it. Thanks, Dan. I I'm really excited to, you know, as always continue the conversation and I'm also ex- always excited to like talk more about pedagogical things. I want to work more on Klesmer pedagogical things with you always and also other collabs. So, yeah, excited about We're gonna it. We're going to do it all. Woo! We're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Awesome. Well, that was my conversation with violinist, composer, educator, and researcher, Zoe Aqua. She's got a lot of new music out, and, like she said, she's showing you what she's up to. She's sharing a whole lot with us, and I'm so grateful that we get to be invited into all the really cool work, research, and fun that she's having. I'm learning a lot from her, and I know a lot of us in this klezmer world are too. Please go buy her album and support her music if you haven't already. It's really good. It's a really cool document, and she is such an awesome player. That's it for today's episode. Radiant Others is produced by me, Dan Blacksburg, and Bela Unger. And to help us keep producing these episodes, we need your support. So please go to patreon.com slash radiantothers and give what you can. And please share 
these episodes with your friends, with your enemies, with your family, and leave us ratings wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode featuring another conversation between me and someone awesome from our klezmer and Yiddish world. In the meantime, I hope you're all well and good Shabbos. Shabbos.